Up next, we have the Chief of Police in Charlottesville, Virginia, Dr. Rachel Brackney. She is recognized as an expert in the areas of harm reduction, procedural and restorative justice practices, and community police relations. Dr. Brackney earned a bachelor's and master's degree from Carnegie Mellon, a PhD from Robert Morris, a graduate of the FBI National Academy, and much, much more. As our host Shonda puts it, she is Dr. Chief Rochelle Brackney. Enjoy the show. Rochelle is perfectly fine, um, whatever you're comfortable with um, that makes it easier, as I tell people. It's only I use the titles when I'm trying to um, make a point, and my audience will often um, pay attention based on the title that I use. Um, right. If I'm in academic spaces or, you know, an audience is fully um, scholars who are working on um, their research and their work, doctor is the only way they pay attention. If I say chief, they tend to devalue what I'm saying mm -hmm. um, as though it doesn't have a, a pedigree or credential behind it. The converse occurs in policing. Having doctor behind it or, and not saying chief, they think I have no credibility because I have no street experience. I don't understand what it means to be a police officer. So chief brings a very different connotation with it um, as to whether or not I have, you know, my voice has value. And it's interesting as a black woman, the only way my voice has value sometimes is mm -hmm. adding these titles in front of it. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so before they get to the, you know, chief Brackney, they're often confused by the last name, the surname, like, hmm, doesn't sound as ethnic as I thought for a woman who's black. And that's right. the long story behind that. But um, these titles really do have influence in the spaces that we both operate in. That's exactly right. Maybe I should call you Dr. Chief. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like, I think I will. Cause you know, it's really impressive. And you know, I was looking at, and I'm like thinking about all of the police chiefs I've come across and, and often you'll come across like a Dr. Reverend but I'm the like good doctor, the, the good, good doctor, doctor reverend right? the good doctor reverend you know <laughs> the good doctor reverend king the good doctor at reverend moss right like i just don't know if i've come across uh, a doctor police chief with a doctorate yeah yeah um you know part of the reason i even pursued it one the work was interesting to me um but two it was interesting i was you know, known as a subject matter expert in so many areas, but people don't pay attention unless you have a bunch of alphabets behind your name, right? Your lived experience is not enough to be a subject matter expert. Um, a practitioner is not enough to be a subject matter expert. You have to have all these A, B, C, Ds and things behind your name for someone to validate the things that you're saying could possibly be true. How can that be true unless you you know, have gone through some sort of rigorous process. Um, but even so, the work that I was doing around um, violence and resiliency strategies for African-American men, particularly African-American adolescents, males, 
in urban communities. So I knew what I was seeing. I, I could, you know, somehow qualify it in my head because that's where I grew up. But how do you quantify that, you know, young black men had these adaption and resiliency strategies in these communities that were actually pretty pro-social in that community. They were just anti-social once you moved outside of those spaces and boundaries, right? So, um, and what was that influence of violence, including police violence, negative encounters on how they navigated those spaces that they called home. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the, the PhD thing just helped me with that. Yeah, community expertise, lived experience, and um, practitioners in work. Do you think that that expertise is beginning to have value in a different way? Or do you think people are just responding to the anger and organizing that they're seeing in community and devaluing expertise and responding to anger and organizing? So it's probably both, you know, I don't think these are binaries. Um, This world we live in is never a binary, Um, but I think there's both. But I think in this case, for the first time, there's more weight given to that, that lived experience, right? That, that rage, that pain, that voice, um, people's authentic voices, right? That we've always seemed to, um, to devalue, right? We were we were comfortable with voices that assimilated, um, which is why you will never hear me use words like, oh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Inclusion is nothing more than assimilation into a system or a structure or a process that you allow me into, right? You allow me into that space. Um, but I think for the first time, we get to reshape what this whole conversation looks like because there are enough of us using our voices to say, this is my experience. This is not an outlier. This is the norm. This is who we are. When we continue to say this isn't who we are, yes, it is. It's who we are. But now that we've pulled back the veil, right, the scales have fallen off our eyes in some ways, um, those voices now have relevance, but also they have power that they've never really had before. And the power that they have now is how do you back away from what we know to be our ugly history and our truth? And can you afford to be the non-woke person? Can you afford to be the slumberer in this current age um, of accountability, of access, transparency, et cetera? So even if you don't want to hear the voices, as I say to my um, counterparts who are often white males, it's interesting that you now get to be semi-woke. Um, it's interesting that you now have to wake up and that you've been, um, you know, when your mom used to shake the bed and wake you up, you, you know, they shake you out of your slumber. Me as a, um, like I said, multi-ethnic who identifies as black, I've never had the opportunity or the luxury or the leisure to slumber or to nap or not to think about these issues and operationalize um, in my spaces, how do we address those issues, right? Naps are pretty cool. Um, oh, man, don't we need a nap? Yeah. Don't you need a nap right now? <laughs> <laughs> Especially in Charlottesville. I mean, right about now, there's, 
Yeah, I could take a nap right about now. Man, I mean, we're right in Minneapolis, right in the thick of it. But, you know, if we, we could talk about that in two seconds, but for, because I think it's important because you're in policing, which is pretty white male dominated from my point of view. That's how I see it. I think that's true. Yes. Yeah, and, and from my point of view too. Um, yes, there are 800,000 police persons, law enforcement personnel in the United States, 18,000 different policing agencies. So wrap your head around that, 18,000 different policing, of which 12% are women um, and 3% are women chiefs. So someone who looks like me is probably <laughs> closer to 0.05%. Um, but it's ranges between 75 to 80% white male across the nation. So as you have entered into the world of police, why did you, first of all, why, why? (laughs) (laughs) You could come right out and say, my sister, what were you thinking? My sister, exactly. What were you thinking? How did that happen? Let me just tell you how that happened. One, I got a black mama. Yep. And there are rules in black mama's house. You either have a job, <laughs> you go to school, mm-hmm. or, or you get out. <laughs> you're getting up out of here. Yep. So, and my mother, um, long story just very short, is um, by the time she was 21, had four children all under the age of four, six kids, I'm one of six, um, has a GED. My dad had a sixth grade education. So, you know, in black community, a good job, a good job was that blue collar job, right? It was that union job. And I'm from Pittsburgh, which is a heavily unionized steel community. So those good jobs were police, fire, um, bus driver, like transit authority of some things like that, postal worker. It translated to benefits and a pension and a really good living. And the story is I had just left Carnegie Mellon University and I wasn't employed. And, um, you know, my mother would bring home all these civil service um, applications. And, you know, as long as you fill out applications, mama's tolerant, because mm-hmm. mama tolerant. So I'm filling out all these applications. I'm just gonna get over because my mom, you know, 21 years old, I'm young, I think I'm cute. I'll, I'll find some job, right? Um, so I, the first, job that called me was the Pittsburgh Police Department. Now, I knew nothing about policing. Had been in one fight in my entire life. Had never picked up a weapon. I'm five foot seven, 120 pounds. I ain't playing with these people. I'm not trying to fight nobody, right? I'm trying to, at best, if I'm out there talking, it better be because we dating or something. <laughs> so I somehow sailed through the, the policing community, um, the, the academy. academy the, and I'm doing all this stuff. And then I pick up my first like shotgun and gun and I'm a good shot. And I'm like, this is kind of cool. And then once I hit the streets, I fell in love with everything about what you could be Mm. and do. And then you also had the encouragement of like my grandmother, my maternal grandmother. And if you, you know, any of you have black grandmas, you know, when they talk about their grandbabies, Lots of pride, you know, and my grandmother would say, you know, God rest her soul. 
that's my granddaughter over there. She's a police officer. And you know, they hit that pole real hard, right? Police. They hit that. She a police officer, right? Look at her little tiny self out there doing this thing. So the black community was really supportive of you in, and I started in 1984, almost 37 years ago, supportive of you being out in the community because it represented somebody who had made it into a position of authority, who might have the ability to influence and to help. So I got into it and, you know, I thought I was just filling out applications, but 37 years later, that just tells me God just put me in this place and space. Um, I ain't had nothing to do with that. Um, but that's how I started and have been in love with what this profession could be mm. now for 37 years. Right. Do you still feel like the community supports you in your role? So, you know what? Um, I think the profession has put the community in a difficult position. Mm -hmm. We have to have some ownership of this, that the profession um, has forced people to be silent when they could be supportive, right? Because we've not lived up to the values of what policing was intended out of Europe. We, we did it very differently here in the United States. You know, policing in Europe was built on a concept that this was a community philosophy in which we all self-governed and policed, and that the police were the only group of people who were paid to do what we all in society should be doing regularly, like policing ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Governing ourselves in that way. Um, so the harm that we have done around um, over-policing, black codes, slave patrols, forces community to make these decisions about, if I agree with what's happening here, am I somehow betraying my community, right? Because we know the origins from which policing in the United States have come, not just in the South, but in the North, right? Mm -hmm. Where police were formed to break up striking union workers, to protect factory workers. You know, I went to Carnegie Mellon University. They pulled in the Pinkertons to break up strikes and to kill, you know, folks who were striking at the steel mills of Carnegie. And so, I'm sorry, Frick, so you brought in um, policing is a very divisive profession from day one. So we force people to choose. And we, when we've not allowed um, the community in for a co-production of public safety, mm. right? When we've created a criminal legal system that lacks justice, it's hard to say I'm going to get on the side of this profession who is the first representation of government's oppression towards a specific type of person um, yeah. or community. So I understand, you know, I have these conversations in my own house. My husband's a professor who teaches on African-American slavery and lynching, right? And mm -hmm. the narratives around that. This is a brother from Jackson, Mississippi. Can you um, imagine the conversations we have in our house about, you know, um, the work that he does and how that actually helps center and inform what I do. Mm. How it's that kind of work that helps me not talk about police reform, because you can't reform a system that is inherently built on a, a, a faulty, corrupt foundation. You have to demolish it and then rebuild it on solid ground that we 
all agree upon that speaks to our values of humanity and empathy and justice. So, yeah, yeah, I hear that. Just to go back a little bit, because I'm looking at sort of um, your path to becoming um, police chief. And I just want to give the audience a sense of, so you started with the brochure in your house <laughs> and then the, you know, the, the department calls you, you get out on the street, you like it. And now you just keep moving and you're developing these certifications and this expertise. Could you just give us a snapshot of what, what those certifications and, and areas of expertise that you've gained over your 37 years? So, so yes. So just to be um, honest and truthful, my formalized degrees were nothing more than a manifestation of my lived experiences. I mean, that is really what that is, whether we, any of us want to think about that at all. Um, the desires to, to, to move up through the ranks to take the classes that I took, to become a subject matter expert on things like procedural restorative justice, it's because that was my lived experience. And then now we got to credential it, right? We get, we get to codify that and memorialize it in some sort of, you know, template um, in the form of doctorates and, and, and programs and 21st century policing concepts, right? So they have all informed that. But the pathway there um, is, is one that most people who have felt like an other is very similar. Um, at every step along the way, literally moving up through every single rank in the Pittsburgh Police Department, taking over then as the chief of George Washington University, and then now landing here in Charlottesville as the chief of police here, the pathway for me um, was probably very similar. No formal mentors. There's nobody who looks like you in these spaces and places that you can go to and be safe with. Um, women don't naturally mentor each other. Why? One, we're not taught to do that, right? There is a process of learning how to mentor and cultivate people and develop people. And if you don't see anybody who looks like you in those spaces, how does that happen? Um, and two, there's nobody in the spaces that can even do that for you. There's no one there. There might be a, a someone who's in the West Coast um, that you are trying to, to look at from afar. So what I actually did is looked at the men who were successful and saw what some of the routes and pathways they took to get there. And then I started studying my craft and my profession, something we don't typically do. Study your own craft and profession to perfect it. Mm -hmm. I slowly would take the classes that I saw that were most relevant to the work that I thought we would be doing, but more importantly, the work that we could do. Not in the moment, but where we could be. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing just that. And then I started putting myself in positions where you would have to consider me. I never eliminated myself. I made you eliminate me. Um, and often we don't do that. Women don't take promotional exams for a lot of reasons. Familial, you know, we're still the primary caretakers of family members. So promotions often mean night shift, weekend work, afternoon work. Our children then don't have caregivers. And people can call this sexist or whatever we want, but we still live in a patriarchal society and whether we acknowledge that or not, right? And so I positioned myself and said, whatever it had to do to, to grind, I was going to do that. And then I read a book by Linda Babcock 
that's called Women Don't Ask, mm. right? It, the book basically says women say that the world should look at them, see their credentials, see their skills, see their abilities, see that opening and make the natural connection that they're the one who are qualified. We don't go in there and ask for it and say, you know what? I'm interested in that opening. I'm interested in that job. I'm qualified to do that. We don't advocate on our own behalf. Men will do that all the time. There'll be a job description for the CEO of Google that says you have to have all of these credentials. And, and they got just for Jenna's. Wait, they just finished, you know, like community college or and there's nothing wrong with community college or they right. just finished like a trade school. And they're putting in for the CEO that says you have to have 10 years of progressive experience. They're like, what do I have to lose? We think that they they should seek us, right? Because we don't, we you see how hard I work, you see I'm qualified, right? They're like, put me in, coach. Yeah. Yeah. And they haven't even got a ball, right? They're just right. like, put me in. So yeah. I started looking at how could I position myself where one, I would ask, and then two, you're gonna have to tell me no to my face. You can <laughs> talk about me when I leave, which you probably did, but you're gonna have to tell me no to my face. So I took every promotional exam. I prepped for those things. I did the work um, and I didn't rely on my agency to develop me. I sought out those classes to develop myself. We currently, even in my agency now, I'll say, hey, is there a class you're interested in taking? If I'm not paying for that class, they're not interested in development. Hmm. You know, that own, what is your responsibility to develop yourself and position yourself? And again, go into those rooms and take up some space. Take up some space. Don't sit in that corner. Um, Had that conversation with my husband just this morning. I'm not a permission person. I'll I'll get forgiveness later. Um, We cannot afford to be the mother may I on these kinds of issues around policing and criminal um, legal reform on immigration reform. The more we ask for permission, the more people then will deny you that. So in some ways, you know, I hate to say this, particularly in policing, is you've got to go rogue on these issues where you're looking for social justice reform. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in my profession, though, often we've just gone rogue. Yeah. Um, and that has um, been to the detriment of the profession and where we all could be. So um, don't eliminate yourself. Don't eliminate yourself. And that's how I've been there. I, lo- I love this story because I think it it just speaks to so many people that have um, seen themselves as other, that have um, recognized that they have to over-credential <laughs> or that their expertise is not seen as equal as other expertise. So you have to do other things to be seen yes. as equal. That, yes. That's what we're talking about, right? That's correct. And, and you know what? And for people who think that, oh, silver spoon in their mouths, and that's how, you know, there were anomalies and, and the book Outlier is another really good book to, to, to read. Malcolm Gladwell. You know, for your audience, you know, I went back to get my... Um, t- to finish my bachelor's and master's as a mature woman. You know, I was a single mom with my 13 year old daughter when I was getting my master's and I took her to classes with me in the evenings because I was gonna have my 13 year old daughter sit at home 
by herself. Mm-mm, boo, you in class with me. And I said to the professor, sorry. You know, when I was doing my PhD, I had women saying PhD before Mrs. And I'm like, I'm old enough to be your mama and not be a teen pregnancy, right? So yeah. um, we have a very similar story, except for I had, I had three of them in class with me. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to uh, the FBI Academy Conoco. You have um, you've been to bomb school. I mean, you've done you've done a lot of things. Yeah. And um, I guess what I'm saying here is that in terms of where we sit right now in terms of reform, because you've said a lot of things in terms of I understand. So you, you've touched on the history of police, policing in this country. You've touched on the importance of representation of people that look like you, both in gender and in community, like lived experience. Right. Right. And That's right. The important part. It's not enough that you just look like me. It's not. It's that, not. That gets people off the hook. Right. It's like, ah, woman, ah, multi-ethnic, ah, degreed, ah, check, check, check. They're no. like, cool. We have met the trifecta. Ah. No. Another part that is so much more relevant. It is. It is. And that when you come into those roles, representing a community with lived experience, the sense of connection and pride is very different. And having that sort of representation allows for changes to happen in ways, right? You get different information, you're able to shape different perspectives, perspectives, right? You're able to understand the problem from within community because that same mama and grandma and all their mother siblings. Outside my window. I don't know if you can hear it. Yeah, but I mean, you know, all of you, you have a number of stories about police interactions that shape you, that extend beyond your professional relationships. And so one of the things that um, really caught me in the conversation um, that I listened to you in. And I swear, I don't even remember what you said. I remember what it was about. And I remember I liked it. And I've thought about it since then with like no no context, right? Other than you reframed the language of use of force policy. Um, Can you share how you've done that? Absolutely. Um, And we even just debuted even more things. So there's Language informs the way you behave, right? If you think about language and how powerful language is, um, I started looking at the, the ways in which we engage in our communities, right? And everyone was talking about this use of force wheel, right? This force continuum that everyone would have. So if you started out with force, using the word force, that means you've already thought about the fact that you're going to have to do something, right? Use some of those systems that you have around your waist to engage with someone. It also doesn't allow you to stop, pause, and think about what you're doing. It becomes this muscle memory response to things. So we started, when I arrived here, looking at that concept of not calling it use of force, but what is our response to resistance? So response to resistance means I have to then look at something, see what it is occurring, process it, 
and how then I respond to it. That may be with force options, but once I get to be able to analyze it, often your response is so very different than your reaction. Force is often a reaction mm. and not a response. Framing the language has been extremely important to us. And this kind of segues into what's occurring in Minneapolis and, you know, the Derek Chavin case. Here in Charlottesville during the entire summer, I was clear, we did not call this civil unrest, riots or protest. Civil unrest, riots, looting, all of that language already positions me to say, we about to have a fight, right? How do you, how do you deal with you know, riots? That's a clash that's gonna occur. From the very beginning, I framed this, we are having rallies, we are having demonstrations and we are having marches in which people are exercising their First Amendment rights to say we are dissatisfied with government. And that first form of government we are dissatisfied with is policing. When you reframe that, then you say, who wouldn't want somebody to be able to support their constitutional rights to assemble and to, to, to demonstrate? As a result of that kind of perspective and coupling with it responding to resistance, right? We didn't have a single incident here in Charlottesville all summer long. No windows were broken, no cars overturned, nothing was burned, no officers got hurt. People did not, we didn't um, use tasers, deploy OC, pepper ball sprays. There were no riot gear, nothing. We had none of that, why? We gave people the place and space to be heard and valued, valued what that what that that expression was. A dear friend of mine once said, and he's a professor, shout out to Professor Jonathan White at Penn State University. So I'm shouting out another brother. Um, mm -hmm. He once had this discussion with my husband and I, and he said, think about protest. Protest is the most powerful expression of powerlessness. And when you think about people feeling that they have no power to even over their own humanity and lives, how can you not allow a venue and space for people's voices to be elevated and heard? So we just pulled back. We created venues for people to have their freedom and first um, expressions of, of, of First Amendment rights. We didn't have our police cars surrounding when the rallies um, were occurring or the marches, I used my public works dump trucks, right? So that if somebody tried to do something, you try and take out a dump truck. The police cars were close by, but they're also not threatening either. When people are surrounded by police vehicles, the likelihood that you have a confrontation or that temperatures get elevated, lights and sirens do something to your body. Why even put anybody in that place? and just allowed it. Um, the only damage was done was twice to my police station. They graffitied it, ACAB, A12, like everybody else. But they didn't break any windows. They didn't burn anything down. I'm like, okay, power wash it off. That didn't always go well with my officers, but power wash it off. Send a summons later to the people who did it. Call it a day. Do you remember 
um, I know you remember this. I don't even know why I'm asking the question this way. When you saw the Floyd video, how did you personally react? And then was that different than how you professionally responded? No, they were the same. Um, they were the same. Um, they were the same. And the re and I'm, I'm, I'm right now like, ooh, ooh, in this space, like, ooh. I immediately came out and said, who, the lack of humanity, right? Do you know how hard it is? And I gave a, a talk on this to be on your knees and kneel on somebody. Kneeling is not a natural space for any of us to be in. And I'm a little old, so my knees hurt, right? When I'm getting up and down. Kneeling is not natural. That is an intentional act to say, to keep my body in this space intentionally with the arrogance and the lack of emotion that you have somebody down there. That means to me, you have been in that kind of position before where you have discarded somebody's humanity somebody's cries for help because you didn't think they deserved. They didn't deserve treatment of, of, of just dignity and respect, right? So personally, I did that. Then I, then I wrote this op-ed that I never published just to kind of get it out, talking about even my counterparts who are now kneeling for the first time when with with people who are demonstrating right and now this is viral photo op let me check your facebook three years ago when colin kaepernick was kneeling what was your response then not when the media is here now and you've got your black lives matter sign up now what was your response then what was your response in Milwaukee, in LA, in New York, in Chicago, in Detroit, in Orlando? What was your response then? Let me tell you what my response was. In 2018, 2019 maybe, either one, I took a knee in full uniform in front of the prior administration leader in chief with 5,000 other people around me in who were all in uniform too as a black woman kneeling down saying, I will not stand for this. Blue kneels too. That is a quiet, silent protest. I didn't need lights, camera, action. You don't get to, and I'm glad people are waking up to it. You don't get to now claim we're behind these issues when the spotlight is on. You know what determines whether you believe this? And I teach my recruits this. It is quiet, singular, heroic courage that gets the job done. Not the, here's the mic in your face. Now we're all understanding and outraged. Mm -hmm. Where were you outraged with all the other cases? Not just because the light is glaring at you now and you better be on the right side of history. The true tale is where were you on that side of history? When your job wasn't when your job wasn't on the line, when you put your job on the line, 
when I went to do that, I'm like, I was still on probation here. I'm like, ooh, what if I get fired? Oh, well. Oh, mm-hmm. well. Yeah. You know, so there is. Um, so my reaction was visceral, but also I came right out and publicly condemned it with my mayor and my city manager. I'm like, we need to call the homicide of George Floyd, what it is, the public execution, what it is. We don't get to just say the death of George Floyd, right? My grandma died. The death of my grandmother is very different if somebody dying in their sleep. The, call it the homicide, call it the murder, what he is charged with. Call it the public execution that we all witnessed. Mm-hmm. And then what about the um, angry in air quotes or was the the people observing his execution angry and hostile? So here's the thing. It depends on who's your definition of angry. Right? You're, <laughs> you're lucky they were just angry and not outraged and not proactive because there are laws that actually say that you're allowed to interfere with an officer who is using deadly or excessive force that protects you from doing that. So, but you know what was sad to me, um, Dr. Chief, (laughs) what was sad to me when I watched them was that they were using it was horror they were expressing there was horror it was horror and they were trying to intervene in his murder to the extent in which they could knowing that they were powerless because they had been conditioned and they knew if they did more they too would be in harm's way There is a conditioning that happened that prevented them from even stepping off that sidewalk. All Officer Tao had to do was step towards them. And you remember what happened. They pulled back. You can see the cameras of their phones pulling back when that does occur, right? But so you're right. We are conditioned. And then often what happens is When you go to do something, the next thing you know, you're being charged with interfering, assaulting an officer. And it is a it it is hard to come out from underneath those heaps of coal that um, occur. So with with your officers, did you all unpack this scenario at all? Like, have you are you embedding it into training? Are you embedding it into conversations with with your sergeants or your lieutenants or your? Inspector. So it's even more for that for me. Um, just had two cases, two, and I'll be careful because it's always legal that I'm, I'm careful with my language. I have two officers that are recently separated from my agency for force issues. So you can figure out how they got separated, but they separated, right? And I did um, press conferences on it saying their behavior violated the trust that this community has in that. And here's the the, the ironic part about it. I have to say, I'm sorry to the community. You want to talk about trauma? Here I am as a black woman having to say, I'm sorry to the black community for what two white males did. I'm the one that has to own that. Mm. So what do we do? We unpack every one of those videos. 
And so you tell me what part, at what point the officer was legitimate and right. Let's walk through this because I need to understand your perspective and your lens by which you're looking at these things. Is it a training issue? I've already had the entire, this is, you know, the Anti-Defamation League did training for my entire department, civilians and all, on implicit bias. But I also said to them, can you please work with explicit bias? Quit acting like this is all implicit. Can you say that one more time? Can you say that one more time? About the implicit? So I asked And explicit, because I'm not sure everybody listening either caught that or understands the difference. Right. So we keep settling on that this is all implicit because it makes us feel comfortable, right? To think that maybe we are subconsciously or aren't aware of our biases. I said to the Anti-Defamation League, I don't want you just to talk about implicit bias. I need you to talk about explicit biases, right? We have them. And I've framed it in a way Because as soon as you say implicit bias, people say racist, and then they don't want to hear your training. They they don't want to hear that this is something that you need to have, that you need to be aware of, right? They're like, then it becomes, no, this isn't me. So I actually reframed that and said, let me talk to you about how we do this in academe. The first thing that makes any of my scholarship rigorous is I identify my biases, how they might influence my research, and then I bracket them. That means I am doing rigorous research because I can now see where my blind spots might technically be or where I might be influenced um, subconsciously, right? In the work that I did around resiliency for, you know, the, the, the young men in my dissertation, I had to bracket that, you know, and I'm from them communities. Literally where I did my work, I'm from, I grew up in. I understand how that might look. I might be a little biased towards it. You know, I understand what that felt like. You know, I grew up on food stamps. I have no shame. The ones with the book, you pulled the coupons out, not the ones where you had any semi-dignity with a card. I grew up in barbershops where you still, you know, my brother would, would you stuff, pull up the trunk and you bought Christmas out of somebody's trunk, including me. I grew up in that community. I understand what it feels like to create underground economies because you don't have access to mainstream economies, right? So I know what those those lens in which people would look at me through explicitly. I know because I am the child of a white father who is Italian and German, whose grandmother, paternal grandmother, felt comfortable calling us half-breeds, mutts, the N words and everything else, right? Who who was just, so I know what that looks like for people to have explicit biases. So why don't we just come right on and say it, own it, and then work on it. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, so as I tell them here, you can have your implicit biases, but if they show up here as an explicit bias, this isn't a place you're gonna find yourself comfortable working at. And slowly we've seen that attrition here where people are like, I'm going to another department. I know we threw up another finger with that, but. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Because we need peace officers. (laughs) So how are you working with your union? How is that going? Isn't that kind of nice? I don't have a union here in Virginia. Oh, okay. So that helps. That does help. 
but they do still have a police benevolence association, right? Okay. Who can advocate on their behalf um, for their grievance processes and things um, of that nature. And, um, but it's interesting because I had a, a very strong union in Pittsburgh. They're like one of the oh. first unionized police departments in the nation, like they unionized in like 1901, like very strong unions um, and there. And I did the same things there. Um, So it wasn't, it wasn't a hindrance from you to moving and creating the culture you needed to create. That's right. Because you still have management's right to manage. You, you know, and here's the other thing I say too, don't just blame it on the unions. There is some mayor or city manager or elected official who's on the other side of that negotiating. A union doesn't get a contract on its own. Some elected official has said, I am willing to let the police police your community under these conditions and with this contract. So talk to your mayor who signed that and said, yep, this is the rights we're going to give them. Yep, this is what we're going to do. Yep, this is how we're going to allow them to treat our communities. Mm-hmm. So you want to talk about the real power. Go after who's the other signatories on those contracts, not just the union president. Was it your city manager? Mm-hmm. Was it your mayor? Who signed the other half? Go after them if you want those contracts changed. And what about the arbitration process? Do you think that needs any reforming? Oh, yeah. I mean, it absolutely does um, need reform around arbitration. I mean, the reason it needs reform is it's like any other um, person, you know, so think about, you know, the work that you do. You may have a contract, um, but it's not binding. You know, (laughs) I've got a contract, you know, but it's not binding with some neutral person then decides, yes, I'm going to have to get an attorney who hopefully specializes in employment law. Um, and I got a few in case that does happen to me, but um, there's a whole lot of process there. There are protections there that are not afforded anybody else. You know, as I talked to my husband about the words, even tenure, I'm like, you know what tenure just means? You have a contract. Doesn't mean it's binding. Lack of tenure means you working like everybody else, <laughs> you know, at the will of your employer. There are lots of reasons that unions exist. And I am pro-union, right? There are people who work in deplorable conditions and we need to hold, you know, that capitalist community accountable for how they exploit labor at the exact same times. There are these type of professions where the protections that are being afforded to them are higher than the protections that we are granting the people we serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the other things that that we that you touched on was this issue of of training, but I, I hear a lot about like does officer training and officer preparation need to be different, and you know do we need to have different policies and procedures in place? And I often think that the the things that we often see on video are not officers following the policies and the procedures that are in place. So that's number one. And then number two is this idea of creating culture is about what I heard you say, what I believe, but part of it is looking at an incident, reviewing it, discussing it, talking about where it could have been different, understand how they're seeing it, 
providing coaching or advisement because you guys use coaching in different ways than I do. Right. Um, so not coaching, scr- scratch that from the record, <laughs> um, but What's providing that? feedback. Right. Yeah, but providing feedback on it um, so that you get a sense of how they are seeing the incident so you know where you can provide intervention if needed or guidance Right. So that it's ongoing. You're creating a culture of when you are when you are providing feedback, it's not in a punitive way. It's in a way that advances community policing. So, right. So I think of that process. Um, so, again, from Pittsburgh, huge Steeler fan. Right. Um, but let's talk about athletes. Yep. You know what athletes do all the time? They study Watch them. tape. They study films. They watch those tapes. Mm-hmm. They watch those tapes. It's mm-hmm. part of their business process. It's part of their service delivery model, right? It says, we want to win by putting more. I'm not a basketball player. My daughter was, but I'm not. But we want more of those baskets, balls in that hoop, right? How is that going to happen? I need to study what I did well in the previous game, where I may have had some um, didn't perform to perfection or whatever it was I was looking for. But I also looked at, the other teams and how they were performing. And then what happens out of that? We create a business process that then informs the culture, right? We hear over and over about people like Jordan or LeBron, they would just sit there at that that free throw line and just boom, all day long. What they were perfecting was their business process and it informed the culture in which they operated, right? So that's what I'm doing here. I'm creating a culture where you're looking at your business practices to perfect your business. Our business, whether we like it or not, is not a bottom line of dollars and cents. And it can be under the conversations of defund and abolish. But our our bottom line is, do the communities we serve, do they believe we are legitimate? Are they still willing to give us moral and formal authority to police over them. And when they're willing to take that away from us, my bottom line is eroded very quickly. So if you create a culture in which you're reviewing your performance in a coaching environment, in a safe environment to do that. Now, this is one of the places where you don't want on the job training um, to see outcomes. So use what you currently have. We do nothing but body-worn camera all day, every day. Mm-hmm. All day, every day. So pull that. Bring the person in and say, hey, and make that so much part of the routine that people aren't afraid they just got called into the principal's office. This is what we do. Mm-hmm. So when you say, hey, let's review some tapes. Let's walk through these things. Let's do this. How could we have improved? And then not only the person who was involved, eventually, what does the whole, that shift look like? Let's all look at this because we then start to have dynamics that occur within shifts, within units, um, um, et cetera, so that we can get to coaching in the same way that you're using it, but also in these formalized ways that coaches do on the field or on the court or wherever else that they are. Yeah. The other thing um, before we wrap is earlier you said you can't reform. We have to demolish and rebuild. Can you give us your point of view on that? Because there's so much around language 
Um, and, and we really set it off here in Minneapolis in all the ways, in all the ways and the defund, but can you, can you talk about what you mean about demolish and how would you rebuild? Absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I don't use language like reimagine or reform, right? So when you reimagine, you often tap back into or tamp back into what you know and then try and reform it, right? Okay, I so, I, so I, I use the word reimagine. Yeah, yeah, we don't want to do that. Okay. And the reason, because it always gives us back to the familiar. It's the imagining that allows us to create from a very different space. Versus so if I dropped the re, I'd be in a better place? We'd be in a better place. How's that? Okay. Okay. We, okay. All right. Here's how I think about this um, as we do this. And this is great because we just announced this is infrastructure week for real, for real, right? $2.2 trillion towards infrastructure. How are we going to redo the infrastructure? Well, you can't just demolish every bridge and tear it all down and start from the beginning. Here's how you do it. You know, Carnegie Mellon is an engineering school, so it influenced me, even though I'm a social and decision science person. Think about the, the roads in Minneapolis, four-lane highway. All of us have been subjected to construction where they put out those orange cones and slowly move us over to another lane so that we can travel on two while they're ripping up the other two. That's what we need to do in the criminal legal system. Mm. We need to slowly put the cones up and start ripping away as we're traveling because there still has to be some sort of a, a justice system I'm hoping to get us there. Um, and as we start ripping away, what does that look like? That has been, what does bail reform um, look like in terms of rethinking bail's original intent? We move bail from, hey, will you appear to, how can I punish, right? So ripping away, stripping away those parts of policing that have not served us, i.e., the legalization or the war on drugs, um, the zero tolerance, the broken windows theories, CompStat, all of these things that Bratton is known for and is hailed as, you know, that Stevens is known for in, in L.A. Um, we don't even talk about what's coming out of L.A. right now, but we, we just want to talk about um, just no longer holding those things up. And when you have someone who's saying, let's reimagine this, let's put the justice in the criminal justice system or the criminal legal system, how do I do it here? One, I'm already tearing down policies that influence how the officers were operating. If you go on our website right now, you will find stuff that you will not find in any other department. I post every single complaint on there. Oh, you'll hear people say, oh, we can post, we post, here's the number of complaints we received, the type of complaint. Mm -mm. The day it came in, a summary of the complaint where the allegations were, the day we closed it, every allegation they were accused of, what the finding was, the race and gender of the officer, the race and gender of the person who filed the complaint. And this year I'm adding corrective action. What was the corrective action we took in relationship to that complaint? That is not heard of. Our response to resistance, every time we use resistance, our, you know, our responses, it's on our website right now. A summary of that, the highest level of force we used in response to resistance, the race and gender of the subject of that, the officer, and the highest level. I've put them out there. You, you can see it. 
Every investigative stop we do, people call stop and frisk. I break it down officer initiated, non-officer. If the officer initiated, we go even further. What does that look like? What was the legal outcomes? Why did they stop them? The race and gender of them? There's so much data on there that my officers were like, why are we doing this? I had a, a community person who was advocating for a civilian review board said, she's only doing this so we won't have any work. <laughs> well. <laughs> Yay. Yay. We sustained 37% of allegations against our officers here. That is huge. The average is somewhere like 5% that they sustain. And we put it out there to be transparent. We put our charging data out there. Anything that we can do to make this a system in which you imagine where we get our moral authority from. And that's how I do it. Where do I get it? Where I imagine where that comes from. I get it from this community. So they deserve access and transparency to a, a system in which they are buying in and entrusting me to be a part of. How, how have you been there for three years? It'll be three years in June. How have they responded to you? Are they starting to understand the benefit of this? So if you haven't figured this out, my joke is <laughs> they'll break before I bend. Um, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> let's just put it this way. I'm a black woman in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, there isn't a week when I don't get some email calling me some B word, some C word, some N word. But here's the thing. I am seeing light because in three years, my hiring practices have changed. So as I introduce people into this community and this culture, here's what's acceptable. We put it straight out there. This is the type of agency we are. And if that ain't working for you, boo, find another agency. You don't even consider our agency, right? Um, but I think I am hitting some nerves. The other day I was on a, a, a call and it was all of the police leaders who are part of our training academy and they do this roll call. And as they do, it's like, oh, Charlottesville, Abermaro, whatever. Chief Brackney's here because you have to count to make sure you have a quorum, right? And I'm, I think two, one of two females, right? But they called another agency that starts with Charlottesville. And, you know, folks forget they on a hot mic. And the person said, I can't stand her. Oh. Right? Cool. You know, when are people going to learn so about okay. these microphones? That's okay. Right? So I Tell, me, tell me why it's okay. Tell me why it's I okay. Because I left a voicemail with him. Okay. So I called him and left a voicemail. Right? And said, hey, it's Chief Brackney from Charlottesville. Why don't you give me a call so we can chat about what just happened on this, this call? Oh, you can't stand me? I can't stand her. Cool. Did he call, did he call you? <laughs> I'm going to let you sit on that, marinate on that one for a minute, right? So when I say it's okay, because sometimes you need to know exactly what you're facing. As I tell people, if you are an MSNBC person, turn on Fox. Occasionally turn on Fox. If you're a Fox person, Occasionally turn on CNN. If you're a CNN person, turn on public access because you really do need to know 
the, the, the enemy that you're fighting. You need to understand what they're thinking. So that's why it's okay. Not what he said, but I'm like hot mic all day long, boo. Cause then I just call him. <laughs> ain't heard back from him and won't hear back from him. Right. And you a chief of police as my grandma would have said. So and police that's responsible police. for accountability. That is something right there. But I think that where, where you just said is I think the importance of what, what we are attempting to do and what I think our role is as a community foundation is even in this uh, big conversation we're having around policing in our city, that we fund people that are on the abolitionist side to people that are in reform, to people that are fighting this someone. I, I can't say we're funding people that kind of, stat there's no one that I know that is kind of status quo everyone's on board with some change, right? Right. So there's sort of a continuum of things, but we think it's important to have sort of these public debates and discussion and to have people understand it from all the sides, but it's challenging to get people to be at the table with people that are on a side different than theirs. Right. So, you know, and to that, I say all the time, then if they won't come to the table, we either take the table to them or we build a new table. Yeah. And, and, and start all over with what it could, what it could, imagining what it really could be like um, to have the conversation. So I'm glad that this space is being opened up um, because there is room for somebody like me. And it isn't a, a, a you know, it's not a dichotomy. You know, when we say Black Lives Matter, that is who I am, right? Um, and my Black life matters in this space wearing this uniform. Um, but so does all my sisters and my brothers with an A on the end of it and my cousins and my husband. And, you know, I don't want to have to scream at the top of my lungs that their Black life matters. And even bringing it back to your space, all of those witnesses to the murder of George Floyd were screaming, his black life mattered. The problem is until we are proactive in taking a stance, it's going to fall on deaf ears. It is just gonna fall on deaf ears. And it requires all of us elevating those voices who are trying to do the work. I'm not gonna get this right every day, trust and believe. I'm not gonna get this right every day. And making this system bend to the will of the people. That's what it's supposed to be. When we talk about bending to the arc of justice, that's what this is supposed to be about. Um, and I'm just glad you were willing to have me on for the, the short moments of time that we've been able to spend together. I appreciate you. I started out saying that. I appreciate you even more after um, spending time with you. I am um, encouraged by you because I think that there is a level of boldness that people are expressing the desire to go, but they don't have the articulation of it. Um, and I think there's so much cautiousness of like not wanting to do the wrong thing that people just aren't ready to do the right thing. And um, we've got to get out of this gridlock. And, you know, I'm, I'm really super impressed and inspired by 
by what you're leading into, how you're communicating, the boldness, the boldness. And, you know, I'm, I'm here for all of it. And I am going to make my way there at some point. And I'll be all over your website and sharing it. Thank you for sharing your wisdom uh, with us. And I hope you have a fantastic weekend, Easter weekend. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I need to come out there um, as well. So I look forward to when there's an opportunity for us to be in space together. And until that time, be well. Keep me in this community in prayer and uplifted. Um, and I will do the same for your community as well. That's Dr. Rachelle Brackney and our host, Shauna Smith-Baker. And stay tuned to our upcoming special mini-series on racial justice in the month of May featuring Jelani Cobb, an award-winning writer for The New Yorker, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, a senior pastor of Trinity Church of Christ in Chicago, Deborah Archer from ACLU, and the family of George Floyd, Angela Harrelson and Paris Stevens. Thank you to Sarah Gillen for making our artwork and copy for this episode. And thank you to Darlin Benjamin for coordinating and making this conversation happen. If you like this episode, you can tweet Shonda at Shonda S. Baker and let her know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave us a review and follow us wherever you get your podcast. This is Sue Pak Keenitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>